0: Darkcast Network, welcome to the dark side of podcasts. There is strength in finding your voice. Welcome. Welcome back to Crime Over Cocktails. This is Tiffany, your host. And today I am here with Lori Gilbertson, who is the founder and CEO of Tribeca Blue Consulting and also was a New York City homicide prosecutor dealing with sex crimes, organized crime, corruption, all of it. You have an impressive resume. Well, well,
1: thank you so much. What a lovely way to start. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I am so excited to be here. And I had been listening to some of your episodes. And um, as I was kind of telling you, I just I really love the way you pair talking about crime with talking about advocacy, because that is so unusual to hear. And also so, so important you know, after
0: doing this so long, I realized nobody was reporting on the after. Nobody cared after the story ended. And for most
1: people, that's where their story begins. It deserves to be heard. Absolutely. And it, you know, I think that sometimes with true crime, people can really get into just the Salaciousness of it, and just it's exciting, right? I mean, there's so many podcasts, there's so many TV shows, there's so many movies, and I think sometimes people kind of consume that without realizing or just thinking about that these are real people and these are real lives. And um, I think one of your you know taglines of you know there are no winners in true crime, and and there just aren't. Nobody really comes out well with any of it. And so looking at how it affects everyone, both during um, and after is so important.
0: Everyone is going through something. And if somebody can at least listen to an episode and realize they're not alone, there mm-hmm. is help out there. I've done my job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've done your job. So you worked 10 years doing district attorney's office, being a prosecutor.
1: I was. Um, I knew from, you know, I knew going into law school that I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I knew that, but I didn't know what kind. I just know, you know, I wanted to be in court. I wanted to be an advocate, but I wasn't quite sure what the subject matter was going to be. And so, my very first day of criminal law class, the professor was just talking about cases and talking about, you know, what happened in court with them and how they would make their way through and what the effects of them were. And I sat there just utterly fascinated because they were about people. And they were about real people, dealing with real things in their lives, and then ultimately affecting something in the legal system and how the legal system worked. And I knew from that day, that is what I wanted to be a part of. And it kind of went from there. And your father was an attorney also. My my father still is an attorney. At the age of 82, he kind of refuses to retire because he loves it too much. You know, so for my dad, um, taking it easy is just not working on Saturdays anymore. So he's um he's a bit of a character, but yes, and he, you know, was is just one of those people who absolutely loves the law, loves everything about it. And that is what I grew up with. So it, it definitely had an influence on me.
0: Did you ever want to work on the defense side or were you set on prosecution?
1: I did do some defense work. So I did a clinic my um, my third year of law school. And so half our year was spent doing defense work and half the year was spent doing prosecution work, which was fantastic. And I thought it was such a great way for the law school to run it. And at that point, I really wasn't sure. And when I was applying to be a prosecutor, I also applied to all sorts of defender um, organizations as well, because I was leaning towards the prosecution side, but also you know, was thinking about the defense side. Ultimately, I went on the prosecution side because I really felt that that was where I could have the most influence, because prosecutors have a lot of power. It's undeniable. You have a lot of power. You represent the people. You have the resources of the state behind you, although... People think those are just kind of unlimited. They are not. They're often very, very sparse, but I really felt that's where I could have the opportunity to do justice as opposed to representing one client at a time. I could have the opportunity to really um, shape things in a different way. And so I ultimately went to, to that side. And I also felt that You know, in a very kind of twenty-four-year-old idealistic way, I could wear the white hat. You know, I could do some good every day, and I realize now, um, and certainly started to realize then, that a lot of people don't look at prosecutors that way at all, (laughs) right? But that—that is how I felt then, and it's still how I feel on so many levels.
0: Well, no, that's good. I mean. I think a little part of all of us wants to change the world. Yeah. Yeah. And if everyone just puts in their little part, I can see where it could possibly change one day, but everyone's got to do that little part.
1: And, you know, the world changes just tiny bits at a time and people's lives a little bit at a time. And you were saying, you know, if your podcast touches just one person and changes them a little bit, you know, then you've changed the world in that way because it changes them and then it changes their life and then they affect other people. And there's that kind of ripple effect. And often we can get so frustrated thinking like you want to have a big effect and how do you have that? And I really thought in my career as a prosecutor that it was just making somebody's life life a little bit better. And whether that was helping them get property back after it had been stolen and navigate how to do that, which was not easy wasn't made easy lots of bureaucracy whether it was you know something like that whether it was just being a listening ear to a victim having nothing to do with the case but just being someone who was there and then being their advocate whether it was winning you know a big case that changed the law all of those things had an effect and i don't think any of the effects were any better or any bigger than than any of the others speaking
0: of changing some laws Have you seen any changes since
1: your time doing this going in the right way? I think so. And, you know, it's been an evolution for me, too. I think just as you mature in your career and as you have more experience, I think the perspective changes from being, you know, 25 and being in a courtroom then. So as as I was there over those 10 years, some things started to change. You know, as I look at it now, yes, I mean, you you see so many um, things becoming uh, much more prevalent even in the public awareness, things having to do with bail and its effects on people who can't afford to make bail and how that becomes such a a kind of punishment. You know, if you can't afford to make bail, you end up in jail, whether even for crimes that, you know, it's parking tickets or something nonviolent and things like that, that just really need to be reformed. So I see a lot of that and that is um, so fantastic. And I would hope, you know, people kind of all sides of of law enforcement can come together for that. And some of the other things I've seen, which, um, you know, has to do with advocacy and with other things are just, you know, in terms of gender, in terms of who is running things. When I was in the district attorney's office you know, almost all of the top people were men. And many of them were amazing, incredible mentors to me who I learned so much from who were um, just talented trial lawyers who I, you know, really helped shape my career. And now we look at so many offices and they're women in leadership. And that makes a difference in how things run, in how things are looked at. I think in my old office, there. Uh, out in Queens now, the district attorney is female, and I think her entire top leadership staff is female. And it's fantastic for change. Girl power. This, right? <laughs> yeah.
0: Sometimes I get frustrated because when you look at stalking cases, domestic violence, sexual assault, pedophiles, it's always like, is the law ever going to catch up?
1: The law takes a, a long time to catch up. It really does. And sometimes it feels like it's a glacial pace, you know? And the legal profession in general often feels like, you know, certainly in business, it feels like it's 15 years behind, you know, where a lot of businesses are and it's starting to catch up. But those kind of cases, yeah, I mean, it really requires a real kind of seismic shift in how we look at things, you know, look at at sex crimes and rape cases and the kind of evidence that used to be allowed in, which was really just kind of blaming the victim kind of evidence, you know, what was she wearing and where was she going and what had she been drinking, if she'd been drinking and why was she out? And that has changed. It's still not perfect at all, but it's changed. So there is hope that it does. I think it really does, but you need, you know, dedicated people out there willing To do that. And also, I think public perception, you know, a lot outside of even the legal arena to shape public perception to help change the law because it's all intertwined.
0: I wish, like, if one state something gets passed that's super important for like stalking, stuff like that, that all the other states would just kind of have to follow suit because clearly a law got changed for a reason. There was a purpose. Mm -hmm. So, why do you have to wait in another state for the same thing
1: to happen? To have the same law. Right, right. And hopefully, you know, reform in one state will affect others. And, you know, it's also great to get some federal laws that change things. But, of course, that's not how it is in state courts. So you're going to have to, even if things change federally, in all federal courts for, you know, domestic violence and stalking cases, most of those are state crimes. So it's going to have to be each state individually. That would be a major change. So, if you can affect that, I hats off to you for that, for sure, and all over encompassing law for all states. No, I would love
0: to somehow. It's it's on my bucket list. (laughs) Hey, we'll chat. We'll chat some more. (laughs) What would you tell somebody who has been sexually assaulted and they took the hard decision to take it to court?
1: Oh gosh. Well, first of all, to be sure they have the mental health resources behind them to feel safe, to feel strong, to feel like they have people who are in their corner um, supporting them so that when they do go to court, um, they have that already. Because, you know, testifying in court, even to something that is not as traumatic as sexual assault can be very scary. So, I mean, I testified in court as to statements I took from defendants or lineups that I witnessed. And I did that every single day. You know, I I was in court every single day and I got nervous in the witness chair because it is a frightening place to be. So that would be number one, to really be sure that they have that kind of support behind them. Um, the, The second thing would be to... Know how to advocate for themselves with the law enforcement and the prosecutors who are handling their case. I think, especially in New York, um, so much of the way sexual assault cases are handled uh, have really transformed. You know, where we prosecuted cases, we handled cases from the very beginning all the way through trial, and it was called being vertical. And we didn't want sex assault victims to have to tell their story. To the first police officer, and then to the detective, and then to the prosecutor responding, and then to the trial prosecutor, and then maybe it would switch and someone else. That's so traumatic. So we really changed things so that the victims would have one person from the beginning, you know, barring emergencies, one person. And to really um, be sure to be open and honest about what is scary about things, what they really need to focus on, and to let the law enforcement and the prosecutors they're working with know those things because as prosecutors, we don't always know that, you know, every, every sexual assault is, is different. They're all traumatic. Everybody responds differently and everyone responds to being in court differently. So just to do that. And, and the third thing I would think of is to know that they are playing an incredibly huge part in pursuing justice and that they only have control Over their part in it, that they're just, they get up, they can prepare, they can be supported, can tell their story. And that after that, you know, hopefully justice is done. Hopefully the verdict goes the right way. But if in the worst of circumstances it doesn't, that it doesn't have anything to do with them, that it doesn't affect the validity and the importance of what happened to them and the effect in them, that they are just one part of getting up and doing that. They are the most important part, but they are that part and that there are just some things beyond our control. And to know that 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 kind of bravery and playing that part in the system is absolutely incredible and, and to hopefully kind of be fortified by that. And on a practical note, what I did with with victims ranging from kids to older was to always bring them into the courtroom, to always show them where they were going to be, to kind of get them almost desensitized to it and just to know that you know the legal system can be a very scary place, but they're going to go in prepared, they're going to go in ready, they're going to go in with support, they're going to do their part, and then they're going to hopefully be able to leave and just kind of let that go and move on.
0: Oh, I like that though that they kind of get a sneak peek first, so they don't walk yeah. in like, holy crap yeah. <laughs> just, yeah,
1: that would be very scary for anybody, really. I started doing it with kids because you know you think kids kids really need it, and then I realized that everyone needs it, you know, if you're not a professional witness, you're not in court all the time. you're not an expert or a police officer or. Um, an attorney who's used to kind of doing these things court can be a very foreign and scary place. And so what can make it less scary is just getting used to it, knowing where you sit, knowing where you're going to walk, knowing where, you know, for a sex assault victim or any victim, knowing where your family can be, knowing where you can look to get that support when you're scared. So yeah, yeah, it, it works. It, It is really important. So I really, really recommend that. And for victims who's, um, Representatives in court or prosecutors or, or whatever in court aren't doing that, you know, maybe someone will hear this and know to ask, you know, can you take me into court? Can you show me where I'm going to be?
0: Yeah, I didn't know that that was a thing, but I think that is brilliant. Take a little bit of that unknowing away. Right. Right. Yeah. It helps. It really does. Oh, I could see that totally. Cause then you're like, okay, I know where I'm going. I know where to look at my mom and dad. The one thing that always drives me nuts is if somebody's been either abused or um assaulted and then their perpetrator is the one who questions them when they are their own oh. pro or defense attorney. Why do we allow that?
1: <laughs> oh gosh. Um I I it doesn't happen often. It really doesn't. I mean, I, I think in my in my 10 years it never happened. And it never did.
0: It's usually a narcissist.
1: Oh, for sure. And and playing on the power and the control that they get. But, you know, you see it in movies and TV and, and all of that. Do you know a, of other real cases, you know, other true true cases where that happens?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah? Yes. I mean, I, I fortunately didn't see it. And, yeah, I mean, I, I really think in those cases we shouldn't allow it. And you know often when somebody a defense defendant wants to go on their own and represent go pro se represent themselves i think probably every single time i saw this uh, the court will appoint a defense attorney to be their legal advisor to sit at the table with them to advise them on things and i am of the same mind as you that when it involves a sex crime or something like that or god i mean god forbid a child that the perpetrator legal advisor should be the one questioning the witness. Cause usually when
0: someone's on the stand, their whole goal is to not look at who did this to them for the Yet, most part.
1: Sometimes. And sometimes people find it incredibly empowering, like in incredibly empowering to be there in court with a judge, judges who, who, treat witnesses, you know, in court with the utmost respect with a jury who is listening to them, you know, having their day, having their time. You know, often people don't listen enough to victims and having the support and being there and airing their story and and often I found victims found it just somewhat freeing to be in court and to know that, you know, the guy sitting over there is the one that is hopefully going to jail or maybe in jail already for what they did to you and that you're in court, you're protected, and you get to look over there and be like, you can't hurt me. You can't hurt me because here I am telling my story. So some some people really did feel that. And and it was always a pretty amazing thing to see.
0: Yes. I think I have heard it that way too, where Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you're not going to hurt me again. And I'm here to make sure of that. But I just feel like that would be whole, whole another ball ballgame.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think in that, in the situation you were talking about with defendants going pro se and speaking to, you know, and and cross-examining their, their victims, I am going to have to do some research on that when we finish our podcast, because now you've got me completely curious. But I would imagine that judges would keep a pretty tight rein on that.
0: We had one actually in Florida. Um, I want to say it was about a year ago. And this guy was wearily off his rocker. And he was screaming at the judge, obscenities. Uh, He had to be taken out a few times. It was a mess. Mm -hmm. And you just feel horrible for these people that have to sit here and say, well, this is what you did to me. And like, well, why would I do that to you? I don't know why you choked me. Like, and you it's say so i hurt surreal.
1: you you choked me like, it's surreal right like mm-hmm. it, it just seems absolutely surreal but i i would imagine in a, that case too that the jury sees it oh and yeah
0: he's he's different. gone
1: <laughs> good. good
0: i mean for the most part i don't know anyone who successfully got themselves off mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know the old saying, right? A, a man who has, right, a man who re- a, a man who represents himself has a fool for a client.
0: Oh, Yes, I and know that it. one. I think maybe the only one who might have been able to get away with it would have been Ted Bundy, because he did so much research.
1: Mm-hmm. And as many psychopaths are, he was a really smart and charming guy.
0: Oh yes, yes, yes. Narcissist ex- again. Yes. yes they are charming that's what makes it so scary because you're like oh my gosh this person is everything I ever wanted they say the right things they do all the right
1: things yeah and if you you know I have fallen down the rabbit hole of cults lately I watched some I watched a documentary on the Nixium cult and then I the whole court case that came out and just got into the legal intricacies and was totally geeked out on that and then was starting to kind of learn more about it and i think so many there's so many parallels of the kind of narcissistic behavior that leads to abuse in cults and the same kind of you know domestic violence and stalking that that we talk about in these kinds of cases that kind of pull people in and then lead to so much abuse it's They feed off the power, the
0: -hmm. control. Yeah. That's what they're after, especially if you have like 30 people following you doing whatever it is that you say to do. You got to think, that's got to be, you got to feel like you are the head honcho here.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But those are whole other podcasts, right? Like there's (laughs) the whole industry that has cropped up around that, too. But it's so good just like you're doing with this, you know, to shine a light on these things. Because without that, you know, you have people in cults who, you know, of course, don't understand that they are actually in them. And then when they get out are so ashamed that they got caught up in it. You know, just like, you know, a domestic violence survivor may feel that too. Oh, It was my fault or um, I made him angry or all the things they're kind of brainwashed to believe that, that, that is so internalized after so long. And just as a, with a lot of these people in the cults, you know, with, with domestic violence survivors, it's never their fault. It's right. Do it. It's never their fault. But that, there's some deconditioning, you know, that goes with that to finally feel safe enough to understand that.
0: Right. No, absolutely. It's, oh, I shouldn't have wore that outfit. Or, you know, why didn't I leave sooner? But maybe you didn't have the financial means. If you're also being financially abused, how are you going to leave?
1: And there's, you know, you asked how things are, I think a while ago about how things are changing. Um, And if I'd seen changes in the law or in the system, and, you know, I do think that our view of domestic violence survivors, and certainly calling them survivors, even as opposed to victims, um, it's, it's a word but it's important it's an important word and important in how the the legal system sees them and important how they see themselves and you know when i was prosecuting we started prosecuting some domestic violence cases without the survivor you know without the woman because they would sometimes be so scared or also just so still under the control and power Of the perpetrator that we couldn't get them to testify. And at the time, I certainly believe that was the way to go to keep them safe and to keep their children safe. As I look at it now, you know, all these years later, while it was revolutionary and it certainly, you know, succeeded in getting some people out of very harmful, you know, violent relationships that could have led to death um, and saved their lives, there is something about doing that too, that becomes very patronizing to that that victim, that survivor, right? The system has now taken over the power and where's their power. And I'm I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing that in some really dangerous cases, especially with children involved, because if the woman can't necessarily protect her children, sometimes, yes, the state does have to step in and do it. And I did have a case like that. And I, I remember doing, and I remember at the time being so... Like, I couldn't understand why this woman didn't take her baby and leave. And I was very young. I was new. I was inexperienced. And I had this case where, you know, her, her partner had taken a gun and fired at her and it fired into the crib where the baby was. And the baby, thank goodness, uh, was fine. And the woman was fine. And she still wouldn't leave him. And I prosecuted it without her and indicted him and the case went forward and he went to jail and they were were out of that situation but like you say the story starts there you know and at that time i i understood that she needed to be out and i did i don't know that i fully understood why she couldn't get herself out you no know, it's something that came with experience i was probably a year into prosecuting And so ultimately the result was the right one, but there needs to be more support. There needs to be more understanding. There needs to be more public awareness. There needs to be more resources to help these women and not just have someone else step in and take power and control over them. Even though, like I said, I I have no regrets. It was the right thing to do and they were safe and they were ultimately separate and good and she was great and the baby was great and the right result. But that's, you know, that that's a nuance that doesn't necessarily get, get addressed. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like, if the person
0: that you committed this against doesn't show up, how does that affect
1: the case? Yeah. Well, it used to be in the law, right? You see it on law and order or whatever, you know, that the police officers respond and they ask the woman, do you want to press charges? And then she says yes or no. There's no such thing as pressing charges. It's not. It's not the, the victim's decision whether or not the case will go forward. That lies in the hands of law enforcement and ultimately prosecutors. So it's a total misnomer, and people think that's how things work. So it doesn't. And when they don't show up, I mean, we would – we would. it depends. I mean, if, if there were some real serious cases, some could be domestic violence, you know, even in narcotics cases, homicide cases, organized crime cases – You get a material witness order from a judge. You convince a judge that this person is material to the case and that they are not going to show up on their own free will. And the judge will give you an order and you go out and you arrest them and you put them in jail and then they testify. Or you arrest them and they are in a secreted away in a hotel room until they testify. And you use the power of the court to do it. So that's that's what you do.
0: That yeah. would always be like scary. I would think like, say, if you're like in the witness protection program, mm-hmm. you know, you're in hiding. And now you have to go to court. Now I have to come out of hiding. You don't know who this person has watching me. You don't know if someone's going to follow you from the courthouse. There's so much that just goes into all of this.
1: Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of precautions we could take. You know, certainly um, having uh, police protection. Um, often asking, certainly with. You know, undercover officers or things like that, which was a, a, a different story. Having the you can have the courtroom closed under certain circumstances. Um, sometimes having a witness's identity blocked, but still finding a way to allow for you know confrontation, the right to confrontation and to cross examine, you know, so that the defendant certainly didn't have any constitutional rights violated. So, so the legal system has some things built in to protect against that. And to protect against that kind of idea, but y- you never know what's going to—you know what what a judge will rule and how it's going to work for a witness and what protections they're going to be able to have. Right, nothing is foolproof. Hi, I'm Ashley, a
0: true crime fanatic.
1: I'm Dan, and I don't know anything about true crime.
0: Together, we host Fuck That, a true crime podcast that covers cases that highlight important topics that are often overlooked, such as wrongful convictions, domestic violence, and social inequities, sprinkled in with the occasional case with spooky themes. If you are looking for your next true crime fix delivered candidly with a hint of sarcasm, you can listen and subscribe to bi weekly episodes of Fuck That wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter. At F that pod and at F that underscore pod on Instagram. Have you ever worked a case where the judge did not go in the right favor? Like, how bad does that not only bother you, but probably that hurts your soul, I would imagine, because you know that wasn't the right call?
1: Yeah. You mean in terms of protecting witnesses or? Yes. Oh. Oh gosh, yes! Thank you so much for bringing that back. I really appreciate it. Uh, yes, Sorry. no, no, it's important. Yes, many times, and uh, the the one that sticks out to me the most is a school shooting case that I tried. Uh, school sh- a shooting on a college campus that left uh, left a young man paralyzed. So he was he was in a wheelchair and, you know, obviously couldn't walk. And this was part of our case that we had to prove that, in fact, the bullet had gone into his spine and the bullet had caused the the lifelong injury of him being in a wheelchair and paralyzed. And the judge in that case decided that it would be too prejudicial for this victim to, and I should say survivor, uh, who could not sit in the witness stand, obviously, because there there was no accommodation at that point. I don't know now, you know, maybe courtrooms have some of that, that there could be a ramp and there could be a way for him to get in, but he was going to sit in front of the witness stand and that it would be too prejudicial for the jury to see him in a wheelchair. So what the judge made us do over my extremely strenuous objection and probably my head exploding, uh, was have us bring the witness in. He had to have, in a humiliating way, get himself and have someone help him into the witness seat so that when the jury came in, there he was. So they wouldn't see a wheelchair, know what was going on, any of it. And then he testified to his injuries, he testified to everything, and then the jury went out and he had to do the same humiliating thing of putting himself in the wheelchair and getting himself out. And, and as you said, it crushes your soul, the bravery he had to testify under and under cross-examination for days and, and other things in the case that, that were just so, so difficult and traumatic for him, you know, just re-traumatizing him over and over. It, Absolutely blew my mind. I could. It was. I mean, first of all, it was stupid, honestly, because it was obvious. And and, you know, I kind of said to the judge, "What are you going to ask him to stand up and walk out of court? He can't do that. He's in a wheelchair because this guy shot him in the back.
0: That's why. That's the end result,
1: (laughs) right? It, you know, and and the same judge. Treated the defendant in that case, who, who obviously every defendant gets treated, should be treated, you know, in court with the courtesy allowed, everyone in court, right? You're a criminal, but you are a criminal defendant. And the judge, same judge in the case who made the victim go through this humiliating exercise. When the defendant walked in and, and his birthday fell, you know, during the court case, judge wished him a happy birthday. And I just, you know, the injustice of it, just the very perception even of it was so overwhelming to me. So yes, when you ask about things like that, that is the one that sticks out the most in my head. Uh, Ultimately, justice was done. Defendant went to jail for a very long time. And the victim survivor in that case got to face him at sentencing wall in his wheelchair and turn right to him and say, why did you do this? Why did you do this? This was so crazy that you felt the need to do this because here I am in this wheelchair for the rest of my life. And here you are going to jail for the rest of yours. But he got a little bit of closure. And that ultimately was why I became a prosecutor, just to give him a little bit of something. Couldn't fix it, but he got that.
0: That's good. At least he got
1: justice.
0: Yeah. Not was easy. the perpetrator like another student?
1: No, he he was not a student and that's kind of what the the argument that he had with the students arose out of. They were at a bar and they were at a bar off campus and the perpetrator and some of his friends wanted to get into the bar and the young man he ultimately shot was the bouncer at the bar and he didn't let them in. And so they were angry and they followed them back to the, the campus, um, the perpetrator and his friends, none of them were students. I don't think any of them were students at the time. So they followed him back to the campus and, and shot uh, not just him, but other people and into a full crowd, full crowd. Of wow. People. For- you know, fortunately more people were not injured or killed. Unfortunately, right. several were that were lasting injuries. Apparently you didn't need anything to drink,
0: dude. <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did I? <laughs> no? Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. I, sometimes I feel like the perpetrators get more rights than the survivors do,
1: and that's another thing that just drives me nuts. Drove me nuts as a prosecutor. Often, I mean that is that is our legal system, and I would imagine if you had a defense attorney come on here they would say the exact opposite and say that they feel that their clients don't get as many rights as the state has or the victims and witnesses get it's all a matter of that perspective there are the beautiful thing about our legal system is the protections that it affords people and the fairness hopefully and the justice that you get from it that is our legal system in idealized sense in, in, on paper, in the ideals and yay, America and our legal system. Um, in reality, it's quite different, quite different. And, and I often had that feeling many, many, many times, especially the, you know, the, the example I just gave you.
0: Right, right. I don't think I could ever be an attorney because I would be yelling at the
1: judge. <laughs> you, you get to do that sometime. You really try not to because you don't want the judge to throw you in jail. But there were times when your patience just gets fried. And uh, that was probably, I don't remember if I yelled. I'm sure I was quite vehement in my objections because I was the one who then had to go tell this, this poor kid that this is what was going to happen. And then I couldn't prevent it. So, but yes, there's, I I believe that our system does need to come around and change to the idea that the protections are not just there for the defendant, although the defendant is the one who is going to have the biggest impact in, in terms of their liberty. Or any other consequences from a case, but the protections need to be there for everybody. The protections need to be there for the witnesses. Protections need to be there for people who are afraid or afraid of retribution. The protections need to be there for rape victims like they are now to not be questions about, questioned about things completely irrelevant to the rape. So in its own glacial pace, the system is changing somewhat. (laughs)
0: Now like when you we talk about like the Jodi Arias case and stuff like that sex was a huge part of that and it was weird to see it put on the other side. Mhm. You know cuz usually we're blaming the victim or the survivor but now it was like oh well look at what she was doing and it was kind of like well dang but I mean people ate it up like ice cream you know people love sex Crime, really? a good story. They just they love it. It sells it, it it does sell, but it wasn't that common to see them use that strategic plan on the defense side. So I think that was my first like wow case that I saw like that.
1: Yeah, what what struck you so much about them using it that way? Just
0: because they never really go down that rabbit hole for that like usually it's well they might talk about her obsession stuff like that but they never get into the kink and all of that like oh well she liked this and she liked it this way first of all but I mean what did
1: that have to do with the case nothing misogyny runs deep it really (laughs) does does and so you know, you have an attractive woman as a defendant and there's a ton of sex in there and you can get really kinky about it and crazy and do that. It's just a distraction, right? I mean, there wasn't, from what I know of the case, right, I didn't completely follow it, but I know the basics. It wasn't so, re- I mean, the, the actual intricacies of it weren't so relevant. The facts of what they were doing in their relationship was relevant. And would it Got have it. been the way if it was a male defendant? What do you think? <laughs> right?
0: What did it have been? You never know. You just, you never know. You just don't. I mean, if it was some bald guy, you know, about three, four hundred pounds, they might have left that part out. <laughs> it's, it's what's going to sell newspapers, what's going to sell the media, all that stuff.
1: And as I recall, she didn't really shy away from it too much. In terms of, of being really explicit about things. And didn't she get on the stand and testify for days and days? Oh, yeah. So
0: She might have been on the stand for like a month.
1: Yeah. I mean, it does. When you are a criminal defendant and you get on the stand and start talking about things, it does open you up to to quite a bit of cross-examination on so many different topics. Really wide-ranging. So. You know, that may have, if it's something she brought up, then they're, they're, you know, the prosecution is able to go there for sure. Right. It's just crazy. (laughs) It is all a little crazy, isn't it? Like some of the, the true crime cases that you see on TV, it, they often, you know, don't feel real, right? Like you think, oh, you couldn't make this stuff up. Oh yeah. You know, in fiction it it kind of has to make sense. And when it's true and it happens, it it doesn't really have to. No, it doesn't it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be organized, it doesn't have to be fair, it just because it happened. Right. I saw, were you covering the Brian Kohlberger case? I did see some things online. Yeah. But yeah. I I did some legal analysis on that case. So
0: what do you think was behind his crazy thought process?
1: Oh gosh. That is another one where I I truly from the the evidence and, and looking at what he's done seems to me like uh, uh, just a true true psychopath, you know, and the thought process being he is going to do what he wants and see what he can get away with, and I have encountered a, a lot, certainly a lot of cases as a prosecutor, you know, really dealing with the everything from crime scene on up, and there were a few of them that were really chilling to me, and that I truly felt. In the presence of evil, not just somebody who committed a stupid crime, or even committed, you know, something like the shooting that I that I told you about. While that person was, you know, I think a terrible person did a terrible thing. I didn't feel in the presence of, you know, evil in that way. He did an evil thing, but I didn't feel that. And there were other defendants, a few that I did that I. I when I think about it now, it's still chills me. And the Brian Koberger case is one of those. And even just reading the indictment in that case, which you know lays out, out all the evidence against him, even just thinking about what the planning that had to go into, you know, killing what, four people in a, a very kind of ritualized way. And covering his tracks that way and, and being so fascinated with serial killers and wanting, you know, it seems like he wanted to experience that for himself. And and it really feels just evil. Just so evil. Just like a psychopathic evil. Right. To be too out there with it. But that's that's what it it felt like to me in in commenting on that case and in really delving into it. Because when you think about what that crime scene must have been like, just the the blood uh, the terror of the victims um and what it must have taken to get in and out and to plan it that way it it just you know even for me, who has seen a lot, it kind of astounded me. It's methodical and it kind of takes a lot to get to me, and that that one did, yeah, I can totally see that. Do you
0: think the fact how serial killers are put on, I don't want to say a pedestal, Mm because clearly these are bad people,
1: but people... (laughs) Yes. No, I think we can safely say that, yes.
0: (laughs) But, you know, people, they write books, they make movies, they have t-shirts, they have, oh, I got the mug. You know what I mean? What do you want? They have it. But do you think that influences people to say, I'm gonna be that
1: next one, you know. With with the son of Sam laws, which prohibit criminal defendants from profiting from their crimes, they can't, you know, write a book and, and get money from it. But that doesn't stop the media and the public from being absolutely fascinated by it. It's a, it's a really interesting question. Does all of that play into it? For some, it seems to that they want the the media notoriety, and they that's how they want to make a name for themselves. And I think that's why so many media outlets are really encouraged to use the victims' names, not the the killer's name. You know, to focus attention on the victims, the people who have suffered, their families. You know, as as you know, uh, and not give that to them. It seems to me that. If you suffer from or are affected by or just that's, you know, you're someone like Brian Koberger, which seems to me he's got that psychopathology that the media attention is is just a bonus and the rest of it is probably going to happen anyways.
0: Right. Some people, they just want to know what it's like to kill mm-hmm. somebody, which is the weirdest thing to me. Like, what what makes you think you get to play God? I will never understand that. I don't yeah. want to understand that.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I know you've had, you know, psychologists and, and people on your show who can probably give you a much better understanding of that kind of, of pathology than I can. Um, but it's, it's pretty scary. It's scary scary. No, it's very scary. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we'll see what happens with that case.
0: Yeah. because. I mean, they're dropping bombshells all over again. So it's it's crazy. It's like new stuff comes out almost every week.
1: So yeah. How do you feel being so enmeshed in all of this all the time with the podcast? Does it get to you?
0: So it used to a little bit because I love the shows and I don't know why, like, I think a lot of us women do. And yeah. I think after time, it dawned on me why is because I think we can see ourselves in a lot of these stories and it's kind of familiar to us and we're like oh gosh like light bulbs come on you know like oh this has happened to me before this has happened to me before and then you see the end result of what could have happened to you and I think for me that's what kind of drew me in It took me a minute to get there because I'm like, why do I love it so much? What's wrong with me? But the more I dissect it, and that's even how I totally flipped a switch with my podcast is because you realize this mostly happens in childhood. Childhood trauma sets people up for their adulthood. So if you're a child and you've been molested, neglected, abused, you have a really good chance of being a perpetrator yourself when you get older and maybe not even realizing it. Generational abuse, huge. You know, it's, if this is the way you were treated, it's normal to you. So you don't know what's wrong with it. Same with like pedophiles. Most of them, they were victims themselves. And so it's just understanding maybe why people do the things they do and not to give them a hall pass or anything, but sometimes you can be like, I don't know if this person had any other choice than to become this
1: monster. Yeah. Wow. That is very profound. <laughs> I mean, incredibly self-aware. Yes. Yeah.
0: And for a little while, it's like all I watched. And then, you know, you dream about things and, and it's like, okay, you got to watch like Family Feud or something. <laughs>
1: cleanse your palate a little bit with something like amusing and, and not requiring a lot of thought.
0: Exactly. But yeah. I'm glad I did because that was, that was my aha moment. And then mm-hmm. that's when I knew I was no longer going to report on all these crimes. I wanted to talk with survivors about what they've been through. Where did this start? What was their childhood like? You know, a lot of these people who end up in abusive relationships were abused as children or they were molested by their father. So sex to them is nothing. It's void.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It means nothing anymore. So when they leave the house, most of them leave, you know, either at 18, could even be before 18, because they just want out of the situation that they're in. And they turn to the streets. How do they make money? You know, because now that's been embedded in them. Mm-hmm. That this is how I survive. This must be okay. This is what I'm good for. I'm mm-hmm. good for sex. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame. And it's it's time we got to flip that switch and realize that there's so many different avenues out there today. Different modalities of therapy that can help mm-hmm. you flip that switch in your brain. You don't have to live like this forever.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> the- this life and create a different life. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes, you know, With you need the resources and the support to do that because it's hard work enough to do that. You know, the therapy and the changing old patterns is difficult work and it is work. So you need to have the support to be able to do that work with someone who you can, you know, who victims and, and people can trust and feel safe with. Right. And it, it's hard. To be. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's hard confronting yourself with what you've been through. Yes. People don't want to face that. They want to shut yeah. it down. Look at John Stamos just came out and said he was sexually abused as a child and yeah. that he just packed it away.
1: What do you think that did to him for his whole life? He's been living in his own prison. And making it look, I didn't know that about him, but to know him, to think of him as an actor, I mean, look at him successful. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that like wow, yeah, it's it's crazy. Right. You
0: just never know who's walked mm-hmm. in what footsteps.
1: You don't. There's a lot of gray in the world, right? and there are there are some things um, that are black and white for sure, and there are some things in in looking at at crime and perpetrators and victims that that can be very black and white, but. There's so much more gray. And prosecutors are better when they see the gray. Defense attorneys are better when they see the gray. judges are better when they see the gray. I mean, it just makes for much better outcomes all all told. But yeah, there is there is so much of that. I think we're everything you're talking about, we're only starting to realize and to see. And, and yes. maybe not to to realize, but to actually face, to have it be in the public consciousness of it.
0: I love it's becoming more open. People are able to say, "This happened to me, and this is this is real, and I don't want to live like this anymore." Like I can't tell you how many guests I've had on my show that thought they were alone. They had no idea there were any resources. Some of them wow. held in what happened to them for 30 years. They oh, didn't tell their parents, their spouses, nobody knew. Wow. That's a hard burden to
1: carry for it 30 is. years. And then there's some connection and they feel okay to to face it, or at least are right. willing to start that process. Yeah. You see it, you know, I have, I have three teenagers And um, I see it in kind of this new generation that talking about, you know, my kids and their friends, this, they know all the language, they know all the lingo, they can talk about everything, you know, the mental health and advocacy is just so open for them. You know, when I was a teenager, I couldn't imagine talking about a lot of the things that they talk about. I mean, granted, they are also facing School shootings and, and the world we live in and, and so many other things that, that were different, certainly from when, when I was their age. But I, I look at them and I am so kind of inspired that, that this is the world that they live in, but also this is the world that they are helping to change and helping to make so much more open. And, and I'm just astounded you know by some of the conversations that I kind of overhear you know all with all of them or the things that they just say and, and that they're just removing this whole stigma of being depressed or having suffered a trauma or abuse or you know needing mental health support that it's becoming just so accepted. And hopefully that will make it less uh, common that you, encounter people like you've talked about, you know, who who had to wait 30 years to feel connected enough to share or people like you said, John Stamos, who couldn't reveal anything for all that time.
0: Yes. It's like, let people breathe, you know?
1: Yeah. And no, it's not their fault. They're not to blame.
0: Yes. That was another big one. One of my guests, he was nine and he was uh, sexually assaulted in a movie theater. And by a man, um, he was there with his friend and he got up to go get popcorn. And the guy was, there was a guy at the counter offered to buy it for him and then took him in the bathroom. (gasps) And he didn't realize that men had sex with men. So he was Mm -hmm. very ashamed. He's a little boy. You know, he didn't understand what was happening. Mm -hmm. And then it's, you go through that does this mean I'm gay? Like, does this mean, you know, it's like this whole thing. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, this was not your fault. You you were hungry. (laughs) You know, like, you did not ask for this. And so now he has, he does group counseling. And you know, they're all raising their vibrations, and they're all on the path to better. And I just I love it. I love it. Love it. And it's just yes. so important to get all this out because everybody deserves to live their life the way that they want to.
1: Mm-hmm. Unless you're don't. a serial killer, then you don't. Yes. Yes. Or a pedophile. <laughs> yes. Yes. We have to, we're gonna carve some exceptions into that statement, but we know I know what you mean. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone deserves to be the best version of themselves. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that is it. I am so grateful for this conversation that started with talking about prosecuting and has ended with talking about like changing. Also started with changing the world and is like veered into other ways to change the world. It's really the
0: whole thing. Yes. <laughs> is there anything that you wanted to add for
1: survivors or for anything that you can think of? Oh gosh, I think we have covered a lot of ground. And I think that, you know, you have said it probably um, better than, than I could right now that, that people deserve to live their lives and live their best lives in the best way they can. And a lot of my part of that was people who were coming into the justice system and nobody wants to be a part of the criminal justice system. Nobody wants to be enmeshed in that as as a victim survivor or as a defendant. You know, the only people who kind of want to be there are the attorneys and the judge. And often I think the attorneys and the judge don't always want to be there. So it is just for for them to know that it, it can be a difficult process but that things are somewhat changing and that there are advocates there, there is support there and to Really consider even in the difficult position when you are the victim of a horrendous trauma of being kind of tapping into the strength that you have to be a part of it and to really help help justice be served because it is very, very difficult, not impossible, but very difficult uh, for justice to be served without the voices of victims and survivors we need those voices we need them in court we need them wherever we can have them and so the more people who who speak up the more people who tap into that strength that they may not think they have but i have seen it hundreds of times that they do and the more people who do that the more their voices will be heard you know and the more ultimately people will be able to live live their best lives and know that well You know, someone else did it. Now I can go do it too. Now I can help do justice. Now I can go, you know, have my voice be heard. Because while I, you know, as a prosecutor was able to prosecute some cases without victims, ultimately never as effective as a victim having their voice be heard. And there is strength in finding your voice that way. So I just encourage them, no matter how hard it seems, to try to do that. I love that. Yes. You hold the power use it right Right. and come out stronger for it and pave the way for others that's right Yeah. do you want to mention about your foundation in case anyone is interested sure well it's actually not a foundation so not you know not the 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 work that you're doing um no i actually have no it's fine um i just want to take credit for something i'm I'm not doing Uh, so yeah so after um After working as a prosecutor, I I eventually left that world and moved on to some other things. And what I'm doing now is I I am an entrepreneur and I I run my own business. And it is a communications company. It's called Tribeca Blue Consulting, named for uh, one of my favorite neighborhoods in New York City, near where I used to live. And the blue because there was another Tribeca, and so I needed to add something to be able to, to copyright the name. So Tribeca Blue Consulting, and I basically help people communicate better. So I do media training for for people who are going out, you know, on the news. I'm podcasts in the media. I do public speaking training, and I do presen- presentation skills training. So if you're really afraid of getting up and talking and letting your voice be heard, then I am the person who is there to help you gain that confidence, gain that clarity, and be able to go out and speak out and have your voice be heard. Find that voice and get it out there. So that's what I do. I do one-on-one coaching. I do trainings and workshops in various organizations. And I also do keynote speaking on lots of different topics. So you can find it at my website with the incredibly long name of Tribeca. Blueconsulting.com. I should fix that. And you can always reach out to me there. My email's on there. And I'm also on LinkedIn under Lori Gilbertson. I'll put the links in the show notes too. Perfect. Sounds great. Always happy to hear from people. Yes. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's it. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really do
1: appreciate it. This is me great. Too. This was lovely. No cocktails, but lots of lots of time talks.
0: Yes. (laughs) If you know somebody who could benefit off of this episode, please share it with them. I want to thank all my listeners for actually trusting in my podcast and accepting what I have to offer. I would love to know if one of my episodes has made an impact on your life. And even if it's the smallest way, if you would please drop me a message on any of my socials, it would just make my heart so happy to know that these episodes are reaching people and that people are appreciative of the content that I have. Which brings me to, are you following me? Because how are you supposed to know my updates? You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, YouTube, and my websites, of course. Both links to the website are also at the bottom of the show notes, and even from those sites, you can get to all of my social media accounts. I love you guys, and we'll talk crime another time. Bye.